September the 6th, 2014, on Saturday, beginning at approximately 3.23 p.m. Hello and welcome to all. This is David Thompson. I am here to share with you what the Holy Spirit would be seeking to say to me, to you as an individual, and to the body of Christ. The Apostle Peter commanded the early church, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God in 1 Peter chapter 4. And so I will seek to speak as the oracles of God. That is why I ask God to sovereignly lead me to a passage, a particular chapter of Scripture. Then what I do is I meditate on that chapter for a half an hour, including the taking of notes, and then immediately after begin to speak, not knowing what I'm going to share, but trusting God by His Spirit to speak through me instead of having things pre-planned. I do this through the casting of lots before God. Today I received Solomon, Song of Solomon, chapter 2. And I should also mention that this week there were some unforeseen circumstances that took up a lot of time. So I failed to preach a message in the last two days before this. Actually, it was on Wednesday and on Thursday. I didn't even get to meditate on the word on this last Friday. But what I find striking is the tremendous parallel between the last three passages of Scripture. And so I will probably end up showing some of these verses in parallel with the chapter I received today in Song of Solomon, chapter 2. But first of all, I will read Song of Solomon, chapter 2. So beginning with Song of Solomon, chapter 2. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight. And his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me, love, was as in italics there, meaning it doesn't exist in the original. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose, and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he please. The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains and skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing of birds is come and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. O oh, my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs, let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. 
Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. The other two passages that I received that I haven't spoken on that are very parallel to this passage, which would not be that evident till I began sharing from this passage, the meaning behind this love poetry here that typifies the relationship of Christ with his corporate bride, of Elohim with his corporate bride, the Almighty's one, was I received Hebrews 12 on Thursday and on Wednesday I received Psalm 27. And so I believe I will be led to refer to some of what are in those two previous chapters that were received by the Lord. In this first verse, we read, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. This is speaking, I believe, of the Lord's bride. And this word Sharon means that which is plainly revealed as prosperous. And the lily of the valleys is speaking of purity, of something that stands out in the valley is very beautiful, so that it is prominent in the valleys. The valleys are a place where there are shadows, where there's darkness, but these lilies bring a tremendous beauty to such a dark background as they reflect the light of the sun that is up in the higher recesses, shining and peeking through the mountain of these valleys, forming an outstanding beauty of light, of simplicity. So we see that the bride of Christ is to come forth in the valleys which speak also of the places of trial and of tribulation that speak of the dark times in one's life individually, of the dark times in history of nations. We all know of the dark ages, but there was always a remnant that shone brightly in the midst of all of these times of trial and darkness throughout history. And through these tribulations corporately in nations, and in the history of the church, there are cycles that happen that ultimately accumulate in God's ultimate cycle when things become totally global and consummate in the bringing forth of his corporate bride, which is the ultimate reason for the existence of all things. For God is love, as it says in First John and two different verses there. And it is evident that God's love is very, very pure. In fact, God's love has an integrity that is absolute, a purity that is absolute. And his love is a choice that is totally volitional from his heart, as it says in Ephesians 1, that he works all things after the good pleasure of his will. And so God's love has a purity in it that is also typified in these lilies, that is also typified in the beauty of a rose that stands out and shows forth its fragrance and its beauty in contrast to its surrounding. And the Lord has a love that is always choosing the highest lasting good out of his own free volition to 
the dying and the cutting off of anything that would be less than the highest lasting good, which is on to the highest good, which is God himself, whose love is a quality that is ever expanding, ever enlarging in its expression, which is totally perfect in such choices of create. And these choices are filled with creativity to bring forth creation. And ultimately, his purpose in this love is to bring forth a corporate bride. And this whole chapter is discussing and showing this process of coming forth of the bride for the bridegroom. This passage of scripture is filled with meanings that are deep in how this process happens within our lives individually as well as corporately to come into such an intimate communion with God. Notice it says in verse 2 that this bride is like a lily among the thorns. So is my love among the daughters. Those that are the Lord's show forth a purity and a simplicity like a lily that is in contrast to the natural tendency in human nature to be vengeful, to take things into their own hands. And we see in history these cycles where when there's an economic collapse and things go wrong, man goes in two different extremes that evolve into different forms of dictatorship. Either it's identity in nationalism, such as in Nazism, resulting in an oppressive king or dictator such as Hitler. Or it's an idealism, which could be many different idealisms, that demand control, that demand that everyone behave like a robot, instead of having their potential expressed being totally free as God created them to be. So you've got systems like communism that are basically just another form of oppressive dictatorship in the guise of claiming equality when their leaders are the ones that are behaving and taking all the money from the masses and oppressing them. When people are oppressed, how is that equality? When the leadership can have what they want and the people cannot. Well, I'm not here to get into politics or to get into a sidetrack. God wants his economy that is based on love because he is love to be a contrast to the thorns of man the thorns of people that people are like in their individual lives that are filled with bitterness when they hold on to their own ways. Human nature is like, I often compare it, the fallen nature that is the consequence of rebelling against God that happened when Edom bought when Eve bought into and Adam bought in to perceiving God as less than ultimately trustworthy and took of that tree or even Lucifer. This is a nature, the moment Lucifer failed to fear God and did not perceive God as ultimately trustworthy, but thought that he could somehow rise up to be equal with God and he wasn't even tempted, so it was a direct sin, similar to the directly sinning against the stream of God's Spirit, which is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that there is, the moment that happens, there's no longer a completeness in one's being. There's an emptiness that one is trying to fill because we are only made to find total satisfaction in God, in relationship with God. 
It's only what is ultimately real that can satisfy the inner core of our being. God created all things for his pleasure, and it is in God that we find the fulfillment of all that we were made to be. When his spirit can dwell in us, that is truly something that quenches the thirst. That's why Christ said, whoever believes from their heart with, or believes into me with their life from their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And this is the type of thing that does not cause this grasping kind of a thirst that's always trying to fill a void that cannot be filled. It's like a black hole in outer space. The more you grasp to try to fill the void, the more you make destructive choices that are contrary to what love is, which is always choosing the highest good. The relationship in this passage is a relationship that describes the completeness and satisfaction that there is in entering in to a right relationship with God. That demands purity. The word of God says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. As I, and I mention a little bit more about this love of God, that this love that is always choosing the highest good out of one uh, that is totally free, free in its choice, is also a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to it. It is totally pure. It has total integrity. It is the defensive aspect of God's love. It is the holiness of God. And this passage of Scripture here is describing a lot about entering into conformity to the holiness of God, the integrity of his love. Because it is out of that that comes this wholeness in our inner being where God can indwell us and that grasping state of being is conquered. And so it's describing here a process of that coming forth. God's purpose of his bride that is complete in purity. That has conquered the destructive, corruptible principles that run the government systems of this world and that are what causes people's lives to end up in a direction that is destructive to others like thorns that hurt others. In verses 3 to 7, we see there in this passage that we need to learn to sit down under God's shadow of covering with great delight that we might enter into the experience of marriage with God. This means that we must not self-initiate our own attempts to make it happen. This is what is in verses 3 to 7 basically being said. But I want to, before I get into this explanation in 3 to 7, also point out the other passages that God had given that I mentioned. Hebrews 12 and also Psalms 27. They're so parallel. If you look at Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And here's the key verse. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In the Song of Solomon, it is describing what the bride is to be like in verses 1 and 2. It is to feed on purity. It is to show forth a prosperity. But that purity comes out of looking onto Jesus because it is in God that this purity resides. And of course, it describes this also in the other passage I received in Psalm 27. 
But I just want to go to Psalm 27 now too as well and just briefly read what's there. What is it saying in verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 27? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? And then it describes how the wicked are around him as enemies and foes that attempted, in fact, it says the wicked, even my enemies and my foes came upon me to eat up my flesh and they stumbled and fell. And he goes on and he says, even if a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war should rise against me in this will I be confident. And then in the next verse, he shows the reason why he can be confident. The reason is because it says here, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In Song of Solomon, which is our theme chapter, it's talking about us being a lily among thorns. Here in Psalm 27, King David is describing how these people as thorns are about him, seeking to destroy him. But that he will not fear. It is fear that takes away the purity in one's heart of relationship with God. What is fear? Fear is basically a consciousness of loss that causes anxiety, that causes uptightness. This is clearly described in 1 John where it says... That fear has torment. And then it goes on to say that perfect, but that perfect love is the solution for it casts out this consciousness of law, this fear that causes anxiety. It is the reception to the being of God who is perfect love. And it's this love that is so pure that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to it. It is a delight in the holiness and the purity of God. It says in the word of God that we are to give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. And so King David here, in the midst of these thorns about him that are seeking to destroy his life, emphasizes where his focus is. It is on relationship with God. His delight is in seeking God and beholding the beauty of the Lord. The beauty of God finds its root in the holiness of God. It issues out of the holiness of God, basically in this way, that when we choose to fear God, which is a choice to be receptive and reciprocal and acknowledge God and his holiness, without perceiving him in a distorted, idolatrous way that would say, oh, God is holy. I, he's caused all of these terrible judgments because he's cut man off from himself and we're suffering and we shrink back and we become hurt and offended at the trials in our life and the suffering we see around us and say, well, why would God allow this, and why would... No, it is a recognition that God is not the author of those things. Because the Word of God makes it clear that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all, and that every perfect and good gift comes from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning, where there's no corruption. Reality, ultimate reality is that quality, according to dictionaries, or all the dictionaries basically say it's that which is unchangeable, un, in, is not able to be destroyed and is everlasting. And that quality has no corruption and it is totally filled with life because there is this integrity of love that is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to it. And, it does, and God is a God of judgment. But that's how we can know that he is ultimately trustworthy because he can hold life without the slightest 
ounce of corruption, of destructibility. He can, he, with his quality of holiness, contains unlimited power and unlimited life without the possibility of being corrupted by it. That is the foundation from which his creativity can be totally without corruption. That is the foundation, I mean, in another way of saying, from which the, his love can be totally expressed in free volition that has choices that are without corruption, that are always to the highest lasting good. And so out of the foundation of God's holiness, of the purity of his brain springs forth, the manifestation of this love in expression ultimately that he can assure his creation destiny that has been tempted, not the creation that is directly went against God's presence without temptation. But this allows for such a wonderful coming forth of purpose that is ever enlarging in creativity, ultimately expressed in his intent to bring forth a corporate bride, which is ultimately focused in the fact that God has within his being, because he has the power to forgive, the obviously and yet requires judgment, that is indicative of the fact that that means his being has the capacity, the moral capacity, to become a perfect atoning sacrifice and absorb the judgment of creation to the point of humbling himself more than the creature and suffering more than us mere creatures that we might be reconciled to God and become his bride. And that was revealed ultimately when he condescended in Jesus Christ and became a sacrifice for our sins on the cross. Now I've said that all to say one thing to explain what I was beginning with, which was this beauty that comes out of the holiness of God. And so, out of this holiness, this purity of love is the foundation for the expression of love ultimately revealed in the cross that brings forth a corporate bride. But this expression is bringing forth wholeness. It is out of the holiness of God that comes forth wholeness. This kind of expression that can assure destiny brings wholeness because it also means that there can be reconciliation to God to all those that truly repent and receive his atoning work on the cross through Jesus Christ. They can receive God's presence dwelling in their being that brings wholeness and satisfaction that conquers the principle within our being that is like a black hole in outer space. It is continually pulling things in in a destructive way, seeking to fill a void that can only be filled with the Spirit of God. It is independence from God and the refusal to receive His provision of mercy that will allow that destructibility to increase to the point of no return and eternal separation in hell. And so out of the holiness of God springs forth wholeness, and out of the wholeness of God springs forth, obviously, the manifestation of his beauty, which King David is talking about there in Psalms 27.4. And so there's real parallels. And we go back to the Song of Solomon now to these verses that I was describing here in verses four to six. There is a prevailing desire. I should, yeah, verses four to six. Actually, I wanted to mention before four to six, verse three, it says, as the apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. 
I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now, there's a lot that is being stated in that verse. Basically this, that there must be, that there needs to be a place we come to where we can sit down and learn to sit down. When we have one prevailing desire over all other desires, which is to seek to be in the presence of God and to see ever more fully the beauty of who God is, it is then that we can know that there will be the covering of God's presence and the rising up of God's authority, joy, liberty, and praise in us. That is what you see in Psalms 27, 46. But as you look at the Song of Solomon, what I'm saying is basically the same thing there. We need to learn to sit down under the shadow of God's covering with great delight. That's what's being described here in verse 3. That we might enter into the experience of marriage with God. This means that we must not self-initiate our own attempts to make it happen. And so we see this being described also in the Song of Solomon, chapter 2. I sat down under the shadow, uh, under his shadow with great delight. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn to stop self-initiating our lives with busyness to serve God and all these other things. Christ said, to Martha when she was cumbered about with much busyness. And Martha said, why isn't Mary helping me? He said, Martha, Martha, you're cumbered about, about all these things, but Mary's chosen that part which is lasting, which is of ultimate worth, and that is to sit at my feet. Even when it seems like it's important, we must learn to sacrifice all of these things that we think we need to do if it's getting in the way of our relationship with God and learn to be still and to know that he is God. I often like to mention Ecclesiastes. I believe it is, if I remember right, Ecclesiastes chapter, um, I need to turn there, but it, it, it's probably chapter five. I'll just quickly take a look. Yes, it is. Verse 1, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. When we choose to fear God, we are making a choice to recognize that God is ultimately trustworthy, to face the ultimate reality of this universe in a, with an open heart that is totally reciprocative to who God is, that he, he is the ultimate source of reality, the I am that I am, is first holy, and that means that we deserve judgment. That means that without him, we are nothing. And it is being in humility before God where we become aware of whose presence we're in, the majesty of such purity of love that is a blazing fire of love that consumes all that is contrary to it, being in awe of the fact that our God is a consuming fire of love, that is the very source of eternal life because of that, of the very source of all that exists, of creation and of bringing forth ever-enlarging fulfillment in, in ultimately expressed in his corporate bride, which you can have your destiny as part of in heaven forever with God. When we are aware of whose presence we're in, 
When you really love someone, they are precious to you. You do not treat them common. You are an utter awe. Psychologists, scientists have discovered that half of the human brain was created to comprehend awe. We were created to worship God. We were created to find our fulfillment in a relationship with God that is worship in all that we do, not just in our times of prayer. So that we learn what it is to bring his creative spirit out of us in fellowship, in all that we do, so that all that we do brings forth his purpose and his life into the destructive things around us, the things of death and of emptiness. It's when we learn to have great delight in his holiness and to be in awe of it and to sit at his feet that we will know the sweetness of communion with God and his fruit was sweet to my taste, it says. And he brought me into his banqueting house and his banner over me was love. And it goes on to describe this relationship. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. His left hand is under my head and his right hand doth embrace me. We we can know the full embrace of God's spirit. But the emphasis in verse 7 is this. If you want to enter into such a relationship of intimacy with God, you must learn this. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he please. In other words, don't start doing your own thing to try to get God to do things for you. Learn to wait on God like it describes here in Ecclesiastes 5. Learn to spend time like Mary at his feet that broke the alabaster bath, the lady that wiped the his feet with the tears of her eyes because she was so filled with thankfulness that she was forgiven. She saw the greatness of God's mercy. Yes, in God's holiness, we see that we deserve judgment and we see the judgment and the consequences of sin, but we're filled with thankfulness at the remembrance of his holiness because we know therein is contained the goodness of God unlimited life and power that is totally constructive unto ultimate meaning and purpose that is ever enlarging. That's the goodness of God. Only can be contained in the integrity of this love. And out of that is the mercy of God. And so we're filled when we recognize the mercy of God, which is the other aspect of God. As it were, there's the negative, which is the holiness, and there's the positive that comes out of that horizontal foundation that forms the cross, that forms the positive, that forms the manifestation of God's mercy and atoning sacrifice. So that they are singing continually about this in heaven. Worthy is the lamb that was slain because it is the very focus of the being of God's love that it was revealed in reconciling us to God. Okay, so here is what we have here in this passage of Scripture. A command, and you will see this parallel in the other passages that I received the last two weeks. In the Psalms that I read in Psalm 27, We need to be aware of God's anger towards sin, even towards us personally and corporately, and acknowledge that God is our comfort more than any close friend and receives us. But we at the same time need to recognize that he is a God of judgment. And this is brought out in uh, Psalm 27 too. If you go to Psalm 27, verses 7 to 10, King David acknowledges this here. He says, hear, O Lord, when I cry. With my voice have mercy also upon me and answer me. When thou saidest, seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face will I seek. And then he says this, hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away away in anger. See, he's aware that God is a God of judgment, even towards him individually. 
Thou hast been my help, believe me not, neither forsake me, O God, my salvation. It is important that we have the awareness of God's judgment in our lives personally. That he is a God of judgment. That he will deal severely, even in our own lives personally, with sin. To the point that David cries out with great desperation that God would not hide his face from him or put him away in anger. And we see the same thing brought out in Hebrews chapter 12, the other parallel chapter. In verses 4 to 10, the evidence that we are God's children is that we are put in trials by God for our profit so that we might be partakers of God's holiness. That's what's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4 to 10. I can read it, some of it. It says, ye have not resisted on the blood striving against sin. And he goes on to say in verse 5, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. See, we can faint. We can shrink back. We can become like Cain that developed an idolatrous view of God, was offended at the consequences of God's holiness, began to perceive his holiness as, and therefore in a wrong light so that he perceived God as a dictator without perceiving the goodness of God that was in the holiness of God. And it goes on in Hebrews here, and it says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. The evidence that we are truly his children, that we are truly owned of him, that we've been born again of his spirit, is that we will go through trials in our lives to purify us, to unravel the deception that is in our lives. Now we go back to our theme chapter, Song of Solomon, chapter 2. And we look at verses, verse 14 now, and it's, and what is verse 14? We're just going to go to verse 14 here. It says, O my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs, let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. The Lord hides himself that it might increase the hunger and long, longing of communion with him. When we are in times of prayer and we're waiting on God, it's not like God's giving us the satisfaction and the, fulf the fulfillment there is in experiencing his presence all the time. The word of God commands us to be rooted and grounded. It says that ye being rooted and grounded, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may grow up into him in all things. It is by faith that Christ dwells in our heart with his presence, but that dwelling is not always felt. Even when it isn't felt, there is that inner sense of something that is so solid that is reality itself. Why is that so? It is because when we initially chose to fear God, and as a result, were brought forth in you by the Spirit of God. It was in recognizing the mercy of God that sprang out of the holiness of God or the purity of God's integrity of love that could allow him to be so full of a love that would be so pure that he could actually take judgment on himself as he did in Jesus Christ and as they perceived from the time of Adam, which I can't go into now, that God was the source of forgiveness, that animals only could cleanse the body and allow God's presence to dwell with them, but that God was the very source and that therefore in him was this ultimate moral integrity with the power to forgive not in the animal. But oh, that's another topic. What I'm wanting to bring out here 
is the, the faith that is independent of feeling. When you choose to fear God and you recognize how great his mercy is that it's come out of this holiness to you, you are seeing how great his love is to you personally. Also, you can see it in his ultimate purpose in history to have a corporate bride, how great this is, how wonderful this is. But when you see that, particularly in your personal relationship with God, that is when your spirit reaches out towards God in thankfulness for his mercy, in a state of faith that is a state of selflessness. It says that boasting is excluded by the law of faith because your spirit is like a fist. It is like the spirit worshiping the soul, a state of pride until you come to that place of recognizing and receiving the mercy of God that comes out of the holiness of God. And that is that recognition is a choice. The choice to recognize God as such and to be reciprocative of that is the choice to fear God that births a response from your spirit that opens up like a hand representing selflessness towards his mercy. And then the spirit of God comes to dwell with your spirit. And I like to describe it as your hand in a state of openness, representing surrender and trust, and God's spirit being the other hand coming to against that hand forming two hands of prayer that look also like a seed. And you have the seed of the new divine nature held in, a, held in that new nature of selflessness by the indwelling of God's Spirit. And that is why in First John it says, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. The new nature is that state of faith that is held in a state that is selfless towards God by the dwelling of God's Spirit. Don't want to get too detailed, but I'm just trying to have a way of describing what's going on here. Because what I'm emphasizing here is a faith that responds and trusts God independent of feeling. Because that's what we see here in the Song of Solomon is that the hunger actually increases when you don't have the feelings, when you learn to persevere independent of the feelings. You know that God is in the clefts of the rock. You know he's in those secret places. And the hunger increases to have a deeper relationship towards him. And just like in physical exercise, the only way your muscles are enlarged is through resistance. So you learn to resist in those times when it seems like God is not there to satisfy you. And it increases the hunger and the longing to hear his voice when you do not sense he is that real in your life. But there's still that longing. And then you start to hear his voice and to be aware of his countenance. And it says here in the Song of Solomon, in verses 15 to 17 in this psalm, basically it's saying this, and I'll point these things out. All earthly distractions are removed, need to be removed, and we should be choosing to remove them that would hinder fruitfulness unto the Lord. And this is accompanied also with a delight in the purity of God in us for communion. With God. In other words, we're delighting to have in our lives a purity that facilitates communion with God. And this is done with perseverance until there's the breaking forth of his coming in fullness. This is basically what's being described in the last part of the Song of Solomon here. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. We need to get rid of the things in our lives that would hinder us entering in individually and corporately to a relationship with God. There is also the parallel shown here in 
various passages. In these other two passages, it's very parallel. What I'm just talking about here with the foxes that spoil the vine. If you go to Psalm 27, let's go there and just see what it says there in verse 11. Psalm 27. It says, Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. In other words, don't allow things in your life that will make your path confusing and cause you to trip up in your walk with God. And we should be asking God to take away those little foxes that can spoil fruitfulness in our lives. And then it goes on here in the psalm and it says this, Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies. For false witnesses are risen up against me and such as breathe out cruelty. And he says, I had fainted unless I believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Well, that's Psalm 27, verses 11 to 13. But also in Hebrews, it emphasizes this on the other passage I received. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look around. Um, for example, verse 12 of Hebrews 12. Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down in the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. The tendency in our walk as believers is that we can become discouraged and lose our motivation to seek God so that we become like someone with feeble hands that have no strength and knees. And we must make choices, concrete choices, as it says here in Hebrews, make straight paths for your feet. Because if you do not... Make choices to seek God and you allow yourself to pursue your own initiations of self-initiations of even busyness in serving God. You will be making things an idol that were meant to be only an instrument to bring you closer to God. We are rather to let these things be healed in our lives. And it goes on in Hebrews and emphasizes this in other verses. For example, verse 1 says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. We are to lay aside the weight and all the things that would so easily beset us. How? By looking onto Jesus, by perceiving who he is through a life of prayer, even when you don't have the feelings, learning to just wait on him with total expectation until there's breakthrough. Eventually, he will be seen coming upon the mountain, so to speak, after you've persevered. And it's for the joy that was beset before Christ that he endured the cross. And it is also... Because we have a view to what is coming that we endure. We know that though we don't see him fully now, as is described in Song of Solomon 2, we will see him. As we read already in this chapter, that he is partly perceived, as it says in 1 Corinthians, though we see through a glass dimly, but then face to face. And I could go on and quote other verses in the scripture. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we shall see him, we shall be as him, for we shall see him as he is. God is calling us as his people to persevere until what it says happens in verse 17. Until the daybreak, that's Song of Solomon 2, until the daybreak, and the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be thou like the roe or the young heart. There's a need of perseverance. And of course, it was talking about that in other parts of this Song of Solomon, chapter 2. 
talks about the him being behind the windows and the lattice. The winter is past. The rain is over. It's gone. The flowers are appearing. You had to go through this winter, this trial. But now there's the time of marriage that is coming. And God is wanting us to begin to see by the Spirit that he's about to put the wedding ring on his bride. God gave me a little revelation of that this week. I saw a wedding ring being put on someone's hand, indicative of marriage, that the Lord is getting ready to bring a rapturous union with those that are persevering and coming into purity and holiness with him individually. And as they come into that individually, God will bring them miraculously together to be his corporate bride. And I am noticing as I continue to pray and ask God to connect me with people that I know it's God connecting me with and I'm not trying to connect myself with. It is amazing how it happens. I had nothing to do with it. I just persevered and I'm seeing a lot of connections that are really of God really of God, and it's obvious God's hand is in it, and that he's beginning to put the stones together in these last days, that there might be the end time move of his spirit that is not merely revival. It is an ongoing enlargement of his presence and glory through his people upon the earth to conquer the darkness and to reap the harvest and to bring forth his bride. And in Psalm 27, there are so many beautiful things as well. And it emphasizes it in Psalm 27, verse 14. Psalm 27, verse 14. It says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And the word wait has the understanding in the Hebrew of rope being twined together so that it becomes strong. And it is only as we curb our self-initiations of what we want God to be in our life so that we can have our own destiny and independence of God. In other words, we have an idolatrous image we are forming, an idol, even though it's not maybe that we're worshiping an object. We formed a distortion of God that either justifies mere ritualism and legalism on the one hand or on the other hand, immorality that is somehow acceptable to God. But God is calling his people to wait on him so that he, through your perseverance of waiting, can purify you and bring you into relationship with him where the shadows flee away where the fullness of his glory comes. God bless you all in listening to this message. I want to challenge the body of Christ to wake up, to not be asleep. Leadership in the church to repent of control Get on your faces before God in front of the congregation. Call the whole church into prayer. Start your church services with prayer. Forget about the pre-service prayer meetings. Make the church service a prayer meeting, especially if you only got a few people coming to the prayer meeting. And Learn to be in awe of who he is in your midst that brings you to the place of great humility so that his grace can be poured out abundantly on you, that brings you to the place of great honesty that in turn brings you to the place of great humility so that his grace can be poured upon you. That allows each member of the body out of that humility to come forth in great liberty. And jubilation is, as their hearts are deeply turned and the veil is taken away and they begin to behold the glory of God so much so that they can't contain what they're seeing within their inner being and it comes forth as living waters of life as a beautiful garden with spices through which the Spirit of God is blowing with his wind and bringing forth the beauty of praise unto him, of the spirit of prophecy, and each member of the body is functioning in the gifts of the Spirit and causing a fullness to come of unity that is pure, that is not in 
leadership or anyone, but in Christ, being more conscious of Christ in one's midst than anyone else. I could go on, but I'm already over an hour preaching. God bless you. This is the message that God is speaking to the body of Christ in this hour. He is calling his people to come forth and to learn, to delight in his holiness through the fear of God, to learn through the fear of God to wait on him, to learn through the fear of God to receive the full revelation of his love so that there will be the full response of faith that will come forth in the gifts of the Spirit and in authority in your life individually and corporately. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this message.